I'm James Poole, a barrister at 10 Old Square, and today I'm going to be looking at Hughes and Pritchard, a recent decision in the High Court, which concerns testamentary capacity, knowledge and approval, and undue influence in the context of wills, as well as a claim in proprietary estoppel. The claim concerned a will made by a Mr Evan Hughes, who was a man from Anglesey. Mr Hughes died in March 2017, aged 84. He had made his last will about eight months earlier, in July 2016. And at the time that he made this 2016 will, he was A, suffering from dementia, and B, grieving for the loss of his son, Alfred, who had recently committed suicide. The 2016 will that he made made a number of changes, including, importantly for this case, leaving 58 acres of farmland in Anglesey to his son Gareth, and that land was known as Ir Evale, and I apologise now for the horrific Welsh pronunciation. So the will challenge in this case was put on four bases. The challenge was brought by Elford's widow and his eldest son. Elford was obviously the son who had committed suicide. Uh, and what they said in respect to the 2016 will was that it was invalid because, one, Mr Hughes lacked testamentary capacity when he made it. Two, he didn't know and approve of the contents of the will when he made it. Three, it was made by Mr Hughes because of undue influence exerted by Gareth, Elford's brother, on his father. And alternatively, as a fourth ground of claim, what they said was if the will was valid, then in that circumstance, or those circumstances, a proprietary estoppel had arisen in respect of ear and ale. And so, in fact, actually, regardless of the will was valid or not, that should fall into Elford's estate. So, dealing with those four claims in turn, the first of them was the claim that the will was invalid because of testamentary capacity. Now, what was argued by the parties challenging the will were that, considering the medical evidence, it was clear that they said the will was invalid. And in particular, what they drew out was, firstly, that there were signs of memory loss and behavioural changes by Mr Hughes as early as 2014, so a couple of years before the will. And in particular, actually, there were there suggestions that he'd sort of forget what land was what, and in particular, Ear of Ale. He confused with another piece of land that had been his. Secondly, they said that in December 2015, i.e. six months before the will, he'd been assessed as having a moderately severe degree of impairment. And he'd actually been taken into hospital because of various complications and then had been referred to a psychiatrist and had scored 47 on an Adam Brooks test, which is not particularly high. Thirdly, that a CT scan that was taken a few months later showed that he'd suffered brain damage as a result of a stroke. Fourthly, that two weeks after making the will, he was found to have dementia and was said to be deteriorating rapidly. Fifthly, that it was said that concerns about his ability to sign similar documents, in this case stock transfer forms related to a company that he owned, were raised by the GP in January 2017. That's the same GP who actually had said he had capacity to make the will. And so what was said effectively is that this was a similar enough transaction to suggest that even though this took place six months after the will was executed, it suggested that actually you could read back into what had happened in July 2016 to see that he lacked capacity then as well. So that was what was said by the claimants. What was important here, though, is that the parties then agreed sensibly to get a single joint expert to determine whether indeed the deceased had capacity or not when he made his will. 
And what that single joint expert found in his report was that on the balance of probabilities, he said the deceased did have capacity. And that was based upon the evidence he saw. And in particular, there was some reliance placed on the fact that at the time he made the will, uh, Mr. Hughes' capacity was assessed by both the solicitor who made the will and also by his GP, Dr. Pritchard. The judge, and this is where it becomes more interesting, despite that single joint expert opinion, found that on the facts of this case, the deceased did lack capacity to make his will. And he did that on three bases. Firstly, he said that on the facts before him that the the deceased could not properly appreciate the claims to his estate, uh, particularly the claims potentially of Elfed. He then also said that the deceased could not properly understand the extent of the estate, or at least elements of it. And thirdly, he also said that, in his opinion, the deceased could not appreciate the nature and the scale of the changes he was making to his will in 2016. And there were various bits where it seemed to be described as that he was making essentially tidying up changes. But in fact, actually, the changes were much more substantial than that. And the fact that he hadn't necessarily appreciated this suggests that perhaps he lacked capacity when he made that will. So that was the key finding here, because the fact that the judge had found that the will was invalid because the testator lacked capacity rendered the rest of his judgment effectively overturned. So we'll look at it very quickly before coming back to these points about capacity and why this judgment is interesting and important in some way. So in terms of knowledge and approval, what was said was that there were five reasons why the will or why it was said the testator lacked knowledge and approval of his will, and therefore it was invalid. The first was the involvement of Gareth, his son, who not only arranged the appointments with the solicitor, but was also present at meetings where instructions were given, been speaking to the doctor about it, had phoned the solicitor to discuss the draft will. So it was said that that heavy involvement was in some ways some sort of suspicious circumstance. Secondly, on the same heading, the fact that actually at the time it was a relevant circumstance that his father, Mr Hughes, was elderly, suffering from moderately severe dementia and hadn't mentioned to Dr Pritchard when he discussed the changes he was making to his will that actually one of the changes he was going to make was to leave Ear of Ale to Gareth. The fact that previously the deceased had relied upon his daughter, Caris to help with his paperwork because she was away at the time or unable to help at the time that he made his will that Gareth effectively took over in this regard so he now had to rely upon Gareth. Another fact that was said was that the will was drafted in English and the, the testator's first language was Welsh and given that it was a relatively complex document this wasn't something straightforward it was difficult for him to understand what was going on in his second language and finally also there was, there was a complicated map showing the land holdings and and what was said was that he wouldn't have understood that because the way it was drawn up um, was confusing and he would have failed to understand that. And all of those things taken together, or perhaps individually in some regards, but particularly taken together, were circumstances that were suspicious, that should excite the, the suspicions of the court and that it sort of fell upon the party proving the will to show that actually the testator knew and approved of its contents. And what the judge said was, actually, if you look at all those circumstances, there was enough there to suggest there were, to at least give rise to suspicions that Mr Hughes may not have known or improved the contents. 
However, there was in this case clear evidence from the solicitor who drafted the will that she had gone through the draft will with Mr Hughes clause by clause and that he nods his approval to each one of those clauses before signing it. And therefore, obviously, given the findings about capacity, the will was invalid. But had he actually had capacity at that time, the judge would have found that the process of him going through the will like that step by step and approving each clause in that way would have meant that the claimants would have proven that he did know each clause and approve of it. Uh, so the, the claim would have failed on that basis. And similarly, the claim would have failed, uh, the third head of claim, undue influence. The claim would have failed on that basis as well. Again, what the judge said is that whilst there may have been some sort of suggestions of pressure put upon the deceased by his son, Gareth, that actually that pressure didn't tip into being illegitimate in so much as it would then become undue influence rather than just influence. And furthermore, that on the facts of this case, the facts were not inconsistent with any other hypothesis. So that the claim in undue influence would also have failed. But obviously, again, this is all over to because the capacity claim had succeeded, capacity challenge had succeeded, I should say. And fourthly was this question of proprietary estoppel, which concerned the land at Ia de Vale. And again, what was said briefly by the claimants was, but it was effectively that representations have been made over the years by Mr Hughes to his son, Elfed, that, that the land would be his, and that Elfed had acted to his detriment in both financial and non-financial terms in reliance upon those assurances or representations. And therefore, regardless of whether the will was valid or not, or sorry, if the will was valid, obviously if the will wasn't valid, then this fell to him under the will anyway. But if the will was valid, then a proprietary estoppel should arise, which would mean that instead of the land going to Gareth under the 2016 will, instead an equity would arise that would make it unconscionable for misused estates to not make sure it went to Elford. And what the judge said actually was in this case, on the facts that were before him, he would have held that had the will been valid, the elements of estoppel were all made out, and it would indeed have been unconscionable for the land not to pass to Elford's estate. And what he did actually do is say, in dealing with the way to satisfy the equity, he looked at what the expectation would have been, and the expectation in this case was Elfid's expectation that the land would have been his, and then said the way to satisfy that was to make sure that he had a fail passed to his estate. And that's interesting in some ways. It's interesting because there is obviously that academic argument about how the equity is to be satisfied in a proprietary estoppel claim, and soon to be considered again by the Supreme Court, I believe in early December in Guest and Guest, so this is a sort of I suppose, an interesting and live issue, but I don't think the findings in this case are, I'm sure, soon to be rendered either approved or otios by whatever the Supreme Court decide in guest and guest. We'll all find that out soon. So that was what was decided. Effectively, lack capacity, so that was the end of it, really. But had he had capacity, he would have had knowledge and approval. There wouldn't have been undue influence, but there would have been a proprietary estoppel in respect of the land at Ia de Vale. So why is this case interesting or, or important or worth thinking about? I think there are two main reasons. I think the first reason is it's a good example of the limitations of expert evidence. Not just any expert evidence, but actually expert medical evidence. 
there is a tendency to consider that expert evidence is in some way determinative, that the fact that an expert has given it means that it's in some way unchallengeable by lay people. Now, that is not always the case, especially when it can be shown that the expert, in coming to his conclusions, has relied upon something that's either flawed or incorrect, through no fault of his own, perhaps, but that's just the nature of the evidence, turns out to be not correct, or that's something that's less than certain. And so, for example, in this case, what was relied upon by the expert was that Dr Pritchard, the GP, had found that testator capacity. And that was seen to be a good reason why, actually, on the balance of probabilities, he probably did have capacity. And what was then elicited during cross-examination in the evidence in trial was that actually Dr Pritchard, whilst he thought he had capacity, he didn't ever discuss with the deceased some of the key changes that were being made to the will. And actually, had he done so, he might have found that he didn't have capacity. He couldn't say, but he never actually discussed that. And so his finding, actually, that he had capacity wasn't really determinative, the GP's finding. And that, obviously, then undermined the expert's finding, which was based upon that. So this case, Hughes and Pritchard, is a good example of a court carefully considering all of the surrounding evidence and then the basis on which the expert has based his or her conclusions and then has found that actually the conclusions in that expert report are not binding or determinative and actually, in this case, can be overlooked or ignored. Well, I won't say ignored, I think, but uh, decided against, perhaps. So, so I think that's the first important thing. And I think it's important because I think there is a tendency sometimes, not necessarily by courts, but a tendency in correspondence or in inter partes discussions to rely too heavily on reports. In this case, a single joint expert, so we couldn't even be challenged on the basis that it was one party's expert. And this was an impartial expert who had complied fully with his duties under Part 35 and acted sensibly. To the best of my knowledge, I wasn't involved in the case, so I can't say if there were any problems in that respect. But, you know, at least on the face of the judgment, there were no, there were no challenges to his conduct, to the way in which he'd given his evidence. So I think, I think it's important because I think there is a tendency to rely upon these things too heavily. And actually, the reality is sometimes a little bit of digging shows that actually the reports aren't worth as much as perhaps people would like them to be. The second reason why it's important is because it shows the importance of a GP when asked to carry out what is usually known as a golden rule assessment. It shows the importance of a GP actually asking the proper questions if they're going to do so, and perhaps also the limitations on those golden rule assessments. It's often said that these assessments aren't determined of anything because only a GP and GPs aren't properly trained in old age psychiatry and whatever other important relevant fields would mean that they'd actually understand the tests properly in Banks and Goodfellow and and effectively a sort of 10 minute chat about the will isn't good enough to really determine whether they have capacity or not. Now I'm not sure that's always right because sometimes GPs have a, well firstly GPs often have a lot of experience in doing these things, Uh, secondly they're often given the correct questions and the banks and goodfellow tests and direct to ask them and then record their answers on them. And so that gives them a sort of reasonable evidence to show the person does actually have capacity at the time. 
So I'm not sure that all these challenges to GPs are inevitably successful. I think they can be sometimes. It depends, again, obviously, on the, the facts of the case. But I think here, the sort of more nuanced point is that, I said earlier, the GP had considered specifically whether the deceased had testamentary capacity at the time he made his will and was then willing to attest to that. But what it actually came out was that what the GP had been told about the will was not actually what the will did. And so the GP wasn't able to ask him questions, and in particular wasn't able to ask him questions about this change of testamentary intention in relation to Ian Vale. And so what that did in terms of trying to prove the validity of will is it really undermined the weight to be given to the GP's evidence about capacity because if the GP didn't ask the right questions, didn't ask him key questions about the effect of his will, then how could it be said the GP's evidence that he knew and understood what he was doing and knew the, all of those elements of Banks and Goodfellow and could say they were satisfied... All of that was undermined by the fact that he not asked the proper questions in the first place and so couldn't really say that the testator knew what he was doing when he made his will. And so I think it's important for that second reason that if you're going to do a GP assessment, it's really important the GP has when doing so. And it doesn't just have to be a GP, I suppose, say any kind of medical professional who's undertaken a lifetime capacity assessment in relation to a will, so a golden rule assessment that actually they know what the will is doing. They know how the will is changing from the previous will. And they're able to actually speak to the testator about those particular points and say, you know, you previously were giving X to your daughter and now you're giving her this instead and you're giving actually what you're going to give to your daughter, you're now giving to your nephew. Why is that? Do you understand what the, the importance of that? Do you understand how it might affect your daughter? Those kind of things to, to actually really dig into those kind of questions so that you can really satisfy, A, the, the professional can satisfy themselves, the person understands and knows what the effect of their will is going to be, but also can then satisfy any challenge that will that, that actually that they'd properly assess the capacity rather than just kind of going, oh, well, Mr. Hughes looked all right today and he was bright and chatty and we had a good conversation about what happened to, you know, Man United at the weekend. And so it all seemed to me that he really understood. And when we talked about the will, he seemed very compassmentous and happy about it all. And that was the end of it. And I formed the opinion that he had capacity. That kind of questioning and assessment is going to be unsatisfactory. And I think this case is a good example of how to do things right, but also how to do things incorrectly as well. So that is a whistle-stop tour of the case of Hughes and Pritchard. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you come back to listen to the rest of the Tunnel Square podcast in due course. Thank you very much. Goodbye.